today from the Global Lane. Angry over his lack of success in Ukraine, will Putin unleash nukes on Europe? I think Russia might use low-yield nuclear weapons to change the balance of power on the conventional battlefield. Once nuclear weapons are used, uh, things are likely to get out of control. A new nuclear agreement with Iran may be close at hand. You can call it Iran's quest for a financial and nuclear snapback. In my view, a uh, strategic mistake on steroids. Human rights concerns about Ukraine are causing U.S. companies to leave Russia in droves. But what about China? There seems to be a double standard on, you know, punishing Russia versus punishing China, which is committing genocide. And don't say gay. The truth about Florida's new classroom instruction law. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. A recent Reuters poll found that 80% of Americans want the U.S. to stop buying Russian oil. President Biden has obliged. He announced Tuesday that steps would be taken to ban Russian oil imports into the United States. Reuters also found that 74% of Americans want the U.S. and NATO to set up a no-fly zone over Ukrainian skies. During his visit to Brussels, Secretary of State Antony Blinken rejected that idea. The only way to actually implement something like a no-fly zone uh, is to send NATO planes into Ukrainian airspace and to shoot down Russian planes. And that uh, could lead to a full-fledged war um, in, uh, in Europe. President Biden has been clear that we uh, are not going to get into a war with Russia. But Ukrainian President Zelensky says a no-fly zone is needed to defend freedom and save lives. We are this zone of freedom. And when the limits of uh, rights and freedoms are being violated and stepped on, then you have to protect us because we will come first, you will come second. Because the more this beast will eat, he wants more, more and more. So if President Biden eventually acquiesces to that request, how likely is it that a no-fly zone could lead to a dangerous escalation of the conflict? perhaps even cause Putin to use tactical battlefield nuclear weapons. Well, joining us is Jason Castillo. He's director of the National Security Affairs Program at the George Bush School of Government at Texas A&M. Limited nuclear war, the idea it has never really gone away, has it, Jason? Russian nuclear capabilities, I guess, are integrated into their conventional forces. So how likely is it that Putin will resort to using nukes in Ukraine? Well, I think right now it's a low probability event, but I'm a little, I'm a little disturbed that uh, you have people calling for a no-fly zone, uh, even a partial no-fly zone, whatever that means. To be clear, a no-fly zone means that we would be preventing Russian planes from flying over Ukraine, which means we would be shooting them down. Uh, I bring your attention back to no-fly zones over uh, Kosovo in 1999, uh, Iraq uh, in 2003. Uh, a no-fly zone means that the U.S. and Russian forces would be fighting. And I think the scenario that worries most of us is that uh, Russia views Ukraine as a very high-stakes uh, contest. And if we enforce a no-fly zone, if we get into a conventional conflict with Russia, uh, there's a good chance that because it's high-stakes, they will risk using nuclear weapons. And they could do it in two ways. Uh, and, and by the way, this is uh, very similar to NATO's playbook or its strategy of flexible response during the Cold War. When you're losing conventionally, you can use low-yield nuclear weapons to signal your resolve in a demonstration to show that 
this has to stop and you're willing to escalate further. Uh, more likely and more trou troubling, I think Russia might use low-yield nuclear weapons not as a demonstration, but to change the balance of power on the conventional battlefield, to offset some of our conventional advantages and put us in a bad spot. Uh, once that happens, we don't have any good historical evidence to rely on to suggest uh, how things stop. In fact, my own view is that once nuclear weapons are used, uh, things are likely to get out of control. Well, if he were to use nuclear weapons, uh, and he resorted to, say, using battlefield tactical nukes, uh, what would that look like? I mean, my, my thought on that is, well, wouldn't the fallout from that go into Russia and actually hurt and harm Russian people as well? Uh, the Luyu weapons, uh, let's, let's use a baseline. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were about 15 to 20 kilotons. Uh, some of our strategic nuclear weapons have yields that are much higher, uh, let's say 300 kilotons without giving exact numbers. These low yield weapons, and again, we had a similar doctrine. We we're talking about one, two, five, ten kilotons. And you can burst them in the air to reduce fallout. And the effects, because they're low yield, would be more local than they would be blowing back on Russia. Uh, using strategic nuclear weapons, would cause fallout and cause, uh, uh, would, would be detrimental to us and the Russians. But this is a way to try to make them more usable on the battlefield. Well, he has uh, his nuclear forces on combat ready alert. So do you think that's just saber rattling or are we really under a threat of limited nuclear warfare here? Well, I think right now it's a low probability event. And I think the administration understands that the red line here is Ukraine. And that's why they're reluctant to to do impose a no-fly zone and get involved in the conflict. Uh, interestingly enough, I think NATO understood this, and this is why Ukraine was not put into NATO to begin with, because they understood that the Russians cared greatly about, about Ukraine. Uh, so I think the, the probability of a nuclear exchange is very low. But if the conflict continues and NATO gets involved, and NATO forces are quite good, especially NATO air power, that could push Putin against the wall. So again, I want to reiterate that I'm very happy that this administration has decided not to get involved militarily. Jason, what about uh, Poland sending these MiGs uh, to Germany uh, for use uh, by the Ukrainians? Would that escalate? Yeah, that has the potential to escalate. The Russian military has complained that Ukrainian air forces are landing in Romania and then flying back over to do combat missions over Ukraine. It's not a stretch to see Russian military officials complaining about airframes coming in from Poland. Uh, this is an interesting case because, again, I think the administration was reluctant to do it, but the polls came out in public and said, this is something we want to do, almost forcing our hand. Um, in, in an interesting little tidbit that a colleague of mine reminded me of recently is that in 2009, the Russians ran an exercise where uh, called Zapad 2009, and in that exercise, uh, it, it envisioned a conflict with NATO and Russia practiced using nuclear weapons against Warsaw. Okay, Jason Castillo, director of the National Security Affairs Program at the George Bush School of Government at Texas A&M. We appreciate you. Thank you for spending time with us. Thanks, Gary.
A deal to restore the 2015 Iran nuclear deal is close at hand. Only some final sticking points are left to negotiate prior to completion. Joining us with some insights on this is Benham Ben Talablu. He's senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Ben, it's good to talk with you again. So in their haste to reach a deal, are the Europeans and Americans making too many concessions? What are the Iranians giving? Anything? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, it seems like this is not merely a, a restoration or, or a resurrection of what was by 2015 standards a fatally flawed deal, but kind of quickly shaping up to be, based on what some are alleging uh, since the past year of indirect talks, a less for more or more for less, depending on whose position you are in, of course. Uh, the Iranians are not only insisting on going back to the sanctions that were waived by the 2015 nuclear deal, but they're actually asking for most of the Trump-era sanctions, which built on top of those penalties, to be removed again. And ultimately, on their own side, they're saying they won't concede more on the nuclear front. So uh, the U.S. will have to be paying more for less timed restrictions on the clock, which is, again, in my view, a strategic mistake on steroids. Iranian leaders often refer to the United States as the great Satan. There's an old adage that the devil is in the details. So share some specifics here. What in the devil's going on? Well, ultimately, I think American uh, domestic politics has been on full display for quite a while now, at least half decade, if not the past decade. But the uh, enmity of the Islamic Republic has been almost permanent ever since the Islamic Republic came into existence 43 years ago. They ideologically and politically have harbored this enmity against the United States of America, to which they have called the label you mentioned, the Great Satan. Now what they're trying to do is they're trying to get as much cash and sanctions relief as they can up front while keeping most of their nuclear program intact to be able to threaten not just this administration, but any future administration, which may revert to pressure. Uh, you can call it Iran's quest for a financial and nuclear snapback. So what's the biggest sticking point in the negotiations at this point? Well, there are uh, allegedly several, but it depends on who you talk to. You know, the Russian ambassador said that a deal could be finalized uh, within hours, if not days. I think he said 24 to 48 hours. Uh, but ultimately, the Iranians themselves say 98 percent of what could be a future agreement is already complete. Uh, as much as the Iranians want to deflect here, the ball is in their court. They could come back. They could change negotiating positions one more time. Uh, and in essence, who could blame them if Washington has changed its position to accommodate the Iranians so much over the past year? Haven't they resisted an investigation into what they've been doing there with their nuclear program? Uh, most, unfortunately, the Iranians have not only resisted an investigation, they prevented access to certain sites. They don't have, uh, you know, appropriate explanations, even by, according to what the IAEA is saying, to undeclared traces of man-made uranium particles that the IAEA has found. They still don't have a good explanation for why they retained uh, what the Israelis discovered and exposed, which is an atomic archive, basically uh, past weaponization studies and experiments and, and plans. So there is a lot in Vienna, not on the political track in these uh, fancy, historic, expensive hotels, but rather where the IEA is actually headquartered there, which is in Vienna, that has not gotten the limelight. And I think the deal, again, stands to drown out this more important technical track of unanswered, outstanding questions. And if you don't have this blueprint of what Iran's past and present nuclear program look like, how are you going to try to restrict it with some kind of short-lived political agreement today? And I know Israel and some U.S. officials say this agreement would give Iran a quicker breakout time. 
They could enrich enough uranium to build a nuclear bomb within six to nine months instead of a full year. Your thoughts on that, Ben? Well, again, it's it's more proof that uh, Washington and, and uh, its its diplomatic partners on the P5 plus one who support this are proving to the Islamic Republic that they're willing to settle for less. Uh, the Islamic Republic literally came out a few days ago and said that they don't believe in America's plan B. They don't believe America has another alternative track or, or uh, to put it differently, a pressure track. So that's why the Islamic Republic can continue to extort uh, the U.S. indirectly at, at these negotiations and get changes based on real nuclear facts on the ground, real advancements the Islamic Republic has made over the past year, year and a half, which in terms of knowledge are irreversible, no matter the time uh, restrictions that exist within the deal. And President Biden says the renewed agreement would put Iran's nuclear program back in a box. So, Ben, is it a nuclear Pandora's box? Where is this all heading? You know, this is a, really a house of cards here. We could we could come up with analogies all day, uh, but ultimately, I think one thing is very clear: that the strategic reason the Biden administration wants this is to be able to buy time, buy time using more money to actually get less time on the clock, to pivot out of the region, to focus on other issues. Uh, but the world, per the Ukraine crisis, has proven that it's not stovepipe like that, that the world is actually much more interconnected, that Iran actually has, for lack of a better word, lawyers on the P5 plus one, the Russians and the Chinese, people who stand to benefit uh, by a, a new fatally flawed deal coming to the fore again. So ultimately, this would be a self-defeating move to pay more, to get less time on the clock, to make this or a future administration uh, have to deal with a much larger, much more dangerous nuclear program, one that the Iranians would be in more control of and could dangle in front of us at a time of their choosing. Okay, we'll see where all this is headed, what's negotiated. Ben, ben Talablu, FDD Senior Fellow, thank you, Ben, for sharing your insights. We appreciate it. Thank you. Apple, Netflix, Nike, Disney, Visa, MasterCard, American Express. American companies are exiting Russia in droves. They're leaving for humanitarian reasons as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Our next guest is disturbed about this, not because he's opposed to punishing Putin, but because he's wondering why these companies are ignoring the human rights of his people, the Uyghurs. Saleh Hudayar is prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile. Mr. Prime Minister, it's good to talk with you again. So I'm assuming you see this as a bit hypocritical. Why Russia and not China, right? Yes, unfortunately, uh, while we support uh, the plight of the Ukrainian people and oppose uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, we are sad to see that there seems to be a double standard on you know, punishing Russia versus punishing China, which is committing genocide against Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples in East Turkestan. You've been, you've been trying for years to get attention on this and get these companies to do something. Uh, which U.S. companies are the worst offenders, Saleh? Which ones are using uh, Uyghur slave labor and so forth? So there's quite a few. Uh, many of the com companies, including like Nike, Apple, um, and others have been, you know, uh, found to be complicit in the uh, forced labor of Uyghurs. And if our viewers are unaware uh, of East Turkestan, uh, like Tibet, it's a nation of people that China claims as its own, and they call it Xinjiang province. Explain what's been happening to ethnic Uyghurs there. 
Uh, since 2016, the Chinese government has locked up millions of Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples into what they call vocational training centers or re-education camps, which are essentially concentration camps where they are being subject to forced indoctrination, torture, rape, sterilization, uh, organ harvesting, and even execution. And I understand a number of countries and people are calling this genocide. Yes, uh, the United States uh, has recognized it as genocide. This was followed by uh, about 10 different parliaments in Europe who also recognized it as genocide. So, so how do you feel about this? I mean, it, it, it seems to me that uh, maybe these companies only, you only get their attention if there are bombs falling on people. Not, nothing against Ukraine. I mean, 11, 1,200 civilians have already been killed there because of Russian bombs and so forth. But uh, genocide against the people, I'm sure many more Uyghurs have been killed. Yes, uh, unfortunately, I think it also has to do with the the uh, geopolitical threat that uh, you know Russia poses to Europe, as opposed to you know uh, China. It's only targeting the Uyghurs, and so for the time being. Uh, but what I don't understand is Russia is evading you know uh, its sanctions. It's con able to continue its invasion of Ukraine because of the lifeline and support that China has been providing it. And so the US, US and the Western nations need to apply the same type of sanctions, the same type of uh, you know, boycotts and diplomatic actions uh, to China if they want to effectively uh, end this uh, uh, conflict in Ukraine. And you're talking about big money there uh, with China, the second largest economy in the world. Uh, much trade going on there. So uh, compared to Russia, that's understandable, isn't it? I, I understand that you feel now that the Biden administration has been a bit slow in exped expediting uh, asylum cases and green cards as well uh, for Uyghurs fleeing genocide. And President Biden kind of ignored the issue in his State of the Union address. Tell us what's happening on that front. Um, we were very disappointed. Uyghurs across the world were, you know, watching the uh, State of the Union with, uh, you know, four eyes, as we say it, um, ho with eager, you know, hoping that he would mention the Uyghurs because as the leader of the free world, uh, what he says has a huge impact uh, and it drives, you know, policy across the world, uh, you know, other governments across the world that wish to speak out, you know, first look up to the United States. Well, it's a matter of leading, isn't it? So what about the asylum cases and the green cards? Tell us about that. So there are thousands of Uyghurs who have uh, been in the United States for years uh, and have applied for asylum, but uh, due to various reasons, uh, their asylum cases have been, uh, you know, very uh, backtracked. And so we're calling on the administration uh, to expedite the asylum cases of Uyghurs and to help, you know, uh, resettle other Uyghurs in uh, Central Asia, in Turkey, and other places that are at risk of being deported to China. And do you feel a little resentful there that Afghans maybe and now Ukrainians are getting a priority over the Uyghurs, even though you've been trying for years? I don't want to say I feel resentful. I just feel that there's not enough attention to the plight of the Uyghurs and, and, and East Turkestan. And finally, what else needs to be done? What can our viewers do? As, as always, our viewers can, you know, 
um, you know, follow us on social media, uh, you know, spread awareness about the situation and call on their uh, elected officials to take more meaningful action. Okay, East Turkestan government in exile, Prime Minister, representative of the Uyghur people here in the USA, Sali Hudayar. Always good talking to you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. LGBTQ bias or false narratives in Florida. The state legislature there passed legislation this week prohibiting classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity for students in kindergarten through third grade. Opponents of the new law refer to it as the, quote, don't say gay bill. That raised the ire of Governor Ron DeSantis, who says despite false media narratives, the new law protects five, six and seven year olds. Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking, I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because I'm you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. Well, it says it bans classroom instruction on sexual identity and gender orientation. I for who? For, 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 for grades pre-K through three. So five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. And um, the idea that you wouldn't be honest about that and tell people what it actually says, it's why people don't trust people like you because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. And we're gonna make sure that parents are able to send their kid to kindergarten without having some of this stuff injected into their school curriculum. The husband of U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and other LGBTQ advocates are concerned about student mental health. I think this bill is vague on purpose because uh, it is trying to silence or push families, students, and LGBTQ individuals back into the closet. Folks, no one's trying to push anyone back into the closet. This addresses classroom instruction of five to seven-year-olds. They were never in the closet to begin with. Children that young don't understand sex. They certainly don't have a grasp of gender identity. And don't you find it interesting that some of the same people who advocated shutdowns, remote learning, and the masking of young children are the same ones who are now suddenly concerned about child mental health? This new law in Florida protects the mental health of young kids and keeps sex and gender discussions where they rightfully belong, in the hands of the parents. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.